Well, I want to welcome you to week number two. I said to you that uh, we were going to continue this series when the church comes together. And so welcome into the second week. This is uh, a very specific and brief month-long, four-week-long series where we are uh, realizing that the the, uh, world will be a different place when the church comes together. In fact, that was kind of the theme of our time together last Sunday. The world will be a much different place when the church comes together. I, I think you believe that, don't you? You believe that God established his church. Christ is building his church in the world not to provide spaces for Sunday morning assemblies, but he is building his church in the world so that the world might be radically changed by the power of God at work within us. That's, that's why we're here. And so the world really will be a much different place. Uh, when the church comes together. Last Sunday, we spent a good amount of time uh, just talking about uh, the history of the church, and we discovered the birth of the church, when the church began. You'll remember from Acts chapter number two, where the Bible tells us on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit of God came and filled the church. And as a result of that, verse 44 of that same chapter says, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Here's what happened on the day of Pentecost. God took a group of people, all of whom shared a faith in Jesus. He assembled them into one body, the church, and then he filled them with his power in the coming of the Holy Spirit to take up his residence within them. That was the moment that the church was born. God had been active in the world, of course, In history prior to Acts chapter number two, God's always been active in the world and the spirit of God had been active in the world and God had always had a witness in the world, but there had never been prior to Acts chapter number two, this defined body on the church, on the earth that was filled permanently with the Holy spirit to do the work of carrying the gospel out throughout the world. That was the mission of the church and it was established on the day of Pentecost. That was that shared faith in Jesus and that common mission of the gospel that brought them, Acts 2.44, brought them together. All that believed were together and had all things common. Uh, Do you remember last week the word that I taught you that is translated in your English New Testament? It's translated together. It's the word koinos, And it means to have a common bond. Literally, it means to be tied or knit together. And last Sunday, we talked in great detail. In fact, I spent a fair amount of time last Sunday talking to you about this idea of covenant. We learned that the church was not just together in common purpose, or they weren't just together in even just in common faith or belief. Those things were part of it. They were the basis of it, but their togetherness was a covenant relationship. And it's important that we understand what a covenant is. And I said to you last week that we don't often think in terms of covenant. As Westerners, we are hardwired to think in terms of contract. You do A, I do B, see results. We have an agreement, don't break the agreement, 
and we'll move forward together. If you break the agreement, I'm released from the agreement. This is the way we think in terms of family, marriage, business. Uh, We all tend to think contractually. But the church is not a contract. We don't assemble together under some sort of contract. We are in a covenant relationship. Do you remember the differences? A contract is about you and me, individuals, but a covenant is about us. Do you see the difference in the focus there? When we come together in a contract, we come this way. We meet together, but it's about your benefit and my benefit. In a covenant, we come together and we meet for the benefit of each other. A contract is entered into because it helps me. A covenant is made because it benefits another. A contract has a set term, a beginning point and an ending point. A covenant is forever. A contract is binding until default. But a covenant is binding until death. It's a major difference. A contract is entered into seeking gain. A covenant is entered into seeking good. These are just some of the differences between contracts and covenants, which we discovered last week. And the reason that that was important for us to establish last Sunday and to be reminded of today is because recognizing how the early church was bound together in covenant is very instructive for us in understanding our own covenant relationship. I want you to write something down. Don't forget this. They'll put it up on the screen for us just to help us understand covenant in local church context. Here we go. In the local church, this is what we do. We pledge ourselves to God and to one another. In the local church, we pledge ourselves to God and to one another. Membership at Brookstone is a covenant relationship. Someone said to me once, it was after one of our engaged classes and I was offering the opportunity for people to join our church. And somebody asked a very um, honest question and it was asked with the right heart, uh, but it was just an honest question. This, this was the question, why should I join? I like Brookstone. I want to be a part of Brookstone. I want to be involved in Brookstone, but why am I required to join Brookstone? It's an honest question. Here's my answer. If your participation at Brookstone is all about you, you don't have to. But if your involvement at Brookstone is about the work of Christ and about the rest of Brookstone, that's why you enter into a covenant. Because you enter into a covenant pledging yourself for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. Do you see the significance, the importance of understanding covenant relationship within the church. We are together, we are pledging ourselves to God, to his work, his glory, and to one another. So the church at Jerusalem was koinos, they were together, and the church at Brookstone is the same. We are together. So what does it mean? Uh, We're together with one another, we're joined in a covenant relationship, functionally, practically, What does that mean uh, for the church at Jerusalem and what does it mean for us 
here at Brookstone. It means a number of things. Today I want to talk to you about one specific thing, and that is this idea of serving. So when we join together uh, at Brookstone, when the Jerusalem church joined together, we covenant together, write this down, we covenant to serve. It's part of our covenant relationship. We covenant to serve. And we do that because all of us would say, I am a servant of Christ. I am a servant of Christ. In fact, on, on both campuses, if that's true of you, now don't lie, but if it's true of you, would you affirm just that last sentence out loud together with me, I'm a servant of Christ? If that's true, would you say that? I am a servant of Christ. Well, here's my question to you. How are you going to serve Christ without serving his people? What does it look like for you to serve Christ? It looks like serving his people. And when we say, I am a servant of Christ by serving his people, we are in pretty good company. If you want to hang out with the right people, then just call yourself a servant of Christ. Go read most of your New Testament. Most of it was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. And multiple times in his letters in the New Testament, he began those letters by saying, identifying himself in this way, Paul, an apostle, and the, do you know the word he used? The servant of Christ. Paul, an apostle, and the servant of Christ. Sometimes he would just say, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. The, the, the gentleman who wrote most of the New Testament identified as a slave, as a servant. Not only did Paul do that, but James did that. Jude did that. By the way, James and Jude, both of whom were half-brothers of Jesus, um, they identified themselves as servants of Christ. Peter identified himself in his letters as a servant of Christ. Moses is called the servant of Christ. Joshua is called the servant of God. David is called the servant of God. When you say, I am a servant of Christ, you are in pretty good company. And in fact, when we think about being the servant of Christ and we assemble ourselves, we identify ourselves with those other servants, then we need to learn how I live that out. If I say it, it's one thing, but how do I live it out in this covenant relationship? How do I operate in a church family with a heart of a servant? Well, we're going to learn how we do that by watching the example of Jesus in John chapter 13. Now, do you know this passage, John 13? Many of you are pretty familiar with this passage already. Let me set the scene for you a little bit just in case you're not. In John 13, you're arriving in the upper room. This is the night of Jesus' arrest, so it's his very last night on earth. In only a few hours from the text that we're going to read, in only a few hours, Jesus will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be taken before Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and convicted and condemned to death by the Jewish religious court. He will then be held overnight in a pit. Early the next morning, he will be taken before the Roman government, a government the governor, uh, Pilate. Pilate will have him scourged, beaten with a whip, and ultimately 
crucified by 9 a.m. the following morning. Literally, these are the final hours in the life of Jesus. And where is he? He's not running for his life. He's not cowering and crying somewhere. He's assembled with his church, if I could say it that way. He's assembled with the disciples. He's gathered with them in the upper room and he is instructing them. He's warning them that he's getting ready to go away and they can't come with him and he's going to go to the Father, but he'll send the Holy Spirit. He's pouring out his heart and his teaching to his disciples in these final moments. You can imagine the, the flickering low light of the lanterns on the walls and the oil lamps on the table. And in the middle of their evening together, Jesus does something recorded in John chapter 13 that none of them expected him to do. And uh, many of you know what it is. Let's read about it. John 13, beginning in verse number one. So the Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come and that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and that he was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, And took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Uh, Skip down to verse number 12, please. So, after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, He said unto them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say correctly, for I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that uh, that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And all God's people said, wow, wow. I think you'll agree with me, won't you, that, um, that Jesus is the greatest living example of a heart of servanthood that you'll find anywhere in the history of the human family. This is maybe the most profound demonstration of service that you'll ever see. Not because someone washing Another one's feet is that beautiful a description, beautiful illustration of, of uh, humility, but because of the one who is doing 
the washing. This is quite literally God in the flesh, God on his knees, washing the feet, scrubbing the dirt off of the feet of his disciples. It shouldn't surprise us, though, that Jesus demonstrated this kind of a heart of servanthood. In fact, he himself had said, this is why I came. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus speaking says, the son of man did not come to be served. Let me stop. Did you come here today to be served? The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that that serving would ultimately be the the, uh, ultimate service of offering his life as a ransom for many. That was why he was here. And so to wash the disciples' feet in in, in light of that statement of his purpose shouldn't be that surprising to us. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 7, speaking of Jesus, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Here, Paul's alluding to what I just said a moment ago, that you have God in the flesh on his knees washing the disciples' feet because Jesus was the one whom Paul says in Philippians 2 was very God. But he didn't hold on or grasp to that identity. He laid aside his glory and came and became, Paul says in verse 7, a servant. So Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus predicted that his life of service would ultimately be the offering of his life on the cross. And in between, he washed the disciples' feet. Now, in all of that, Jesus then applies to his disciples this lesson. When he says in chapter number 13 and verse number 14, If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Verily I say unto you, the servant. Now, put yourself around the table in the upper room. You're one of the disciples. You're watching what's happening as the meal has come to an end. Jesus rises from supper. This, isn't, this takes place, I can almost imagine, in slow motion. Jesus goes over, lays aside his robe, puts a towel like a, like a slave, like a servant, puts a towel, a serving towel around his waist. Gets a basin of water. They must be thinking, what's he doing? What, what, surely he, he's not, no, 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 he, he's not, surely not going to do that. He comes back with the basin and the towel, begins to kneel at each one, wash their feet. Once he's finished, he comes back to the table. No one says a word. And his question is, do you know what I have done? You call me master and Lord, and you're right. And if I, your master and Lord, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. Then he says this, verse 16, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Do you realize, do you see what he did right there? He, He drew a separation and he said, I am the Lord. You are the, what? Servant. I am the Lord. You are the servant. And you, servant, are not greater than your Lord. And if I have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. You are servants. That's what Jesus says. You are servants. 
Now, the word that Jesus used, he didn't speak English, and so he didn't say servants. He used a Greek word, which is the word doulos. You are doulos. The doulos is not greater than his master. The word doulos means a bond servant. It literally is a word which means one who is knit together with or tied to, literally bound with another. And in that knitting together or in that union, the one serves the other. In truth, they both serve one another. But the the concept, the idea is that you are tied together. You are knit together. He says you are a servant who has been bound together with the one that you serve. Now, by the way, I would just suggest to you that in the family of God, there are no conscripted servants. There is no draft in the army of God. He is looking for volunteers for his army. He is looking for those who would see themselves as being so knit together with him that they would simply be his servants, who would be knit together with one another that they would see themselves as servants of one another. In fact, this is what he says, isn't it? Verse number 14, do you see the one another in there? If if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash whose feet? One another's feet. Sure you should. Now, uh, the timing of Jesus giving this lesson, demonstrating it uh, by washing their feet and then commanding them that they ought to wash one another's feet, follows when you, when you read through all the Gospels and you try to harmonize the Gospels and say, well, on the night in the upper room, what happened in which order? It appears, and in fact, it only is logical that something that Luke describes as happening that night must have happened before the text that we just read in John 13. Let me read it to you. You can turn if you'd like. It's in Luke chapter number 22. In fact, you ought to turn probably and mark it in your Bible. That's why you bring a Bible, isn't it? So you can turn to those pages and mark it. Why don't you do that? Luke chapter 22. Listen to verse number 24. This is at the table. This is when they're in the upper room. This is the exact same night, exact same moments, exact same location as John 13. Listen to what happens. Luke 22, 24. And there arose, uh, there also was a strife an argument among them as to which of them should be accounted the greatest. Now, these are the people that he's dealing with. This is this recurring, it's not the only time it happens, by the way, it is this recurring argument that happens between these disciples jostling for position, trying to determine who is going to be the greatest in this kingdom of God that Jesus came to build. Maybe the argument around the table happened because of who was seated where, who was closest to Jesus and who was the furthest away from Jesus. No, you don't sit there. I want to sit there. No, you move and I'll sit there. Maybe somebody went up to go wash their hands and somebody took their seat and get up. That's my chair. And I want to be near the master. And all Jesus sees is this competition between them as to who will be the greatest. And so he gives them this illustration And this command that they should, rather than striving for uh, greatness, they should strive to serve one another. I want this truth 
to settle in your heart today like maybe nothing ever has before. Not a sermon where you go home and you say, well, I went to church today and that was a nice sermon. But a message from Almighty God that would reorient your life, that would change the way you think, and that would that would shift the way you engage in the covenant relationship of your church family. That of a servant. Now, I think there are some things that we can learn from our Lord. And I want you to jot these things down because he shows us in his example of service to these disciples how we should serve as well. So write them down. The first thing is that Jesus shows us what a servant does. What is it that a servant does? And how can we learn? What should we do as servants? Now, you might expect at this point that I am going to direct you to a long list of ministry opportunities and show you all of the places or ways in which you can fill a slot and become a volunteer at Brookstone. I'm not going to do that. We need a lot of volunteers. It takes hundreds of people to, to pull off ministry here every week. And, and we do need a lot of volunteers. And thank God we have a lot of volunteers. But I want to talk to you about something much deeper today than a willingness to volunteer. In fact, may I suggest to you that while we ought to volunteer our time, Jesus never commanded us to be volunteers. There's no... You won't find the word volunteer in the Bible. Jesus didn't say, I want you to be a volunteer. Jesus said, you're a servant. And so I want to talk to you today, not about volunteering your time, but about, but about being a servant. And servanthood, living with, a, with an attitude of servanthood, is, is, about much more, or is much more about who we are than it is about what we spend our time doing. So when, as we talk about what a servant does, let's begin by talking about what a servant knows. Write this down. Servants know who they are in Christ. Servants know who they are in Christ. Now the truth is, some people don't serve because they don't understand their security. They don't fully understand their identity in Jesus. And so they're trying to create their own identity. They're, they're trying to, to create a persona of who they are, what they will do, what they won't do, what they are skilled at, what they're not so uh, apt to do, rather than simply understand who they are in Jesus and that knowledge frees them to serve with a spirit of humility and servanthood. Servants know who they are in Christ. Look at what the Bible says in verse number three. I'm back in John 13 and verse number Three, Jesus, the Bible says, knowing. Everybody say the word knowing. 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 Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus knowing that he was come from God. And Jesus knowing that he went to God or that he was going back to God. He then rose from supper and began to serve. Jesus knew who he was. There was no Jesus didn't need to jostle for position. He, he didn't need to try to prove who he was. He wasn't walking around, chin up in the air, saying, I am. No, he, he, was, he knew in his heart 
the authority that God had given him. He knew his divine origin. He knew his deity. It wasn't lost on Jesus, the man who he was. He knew what was about to happen and that he was going back to the Father. And yet, with all of that authority and with all of that divinity and with all of that glory soon to envelop him again in the presence of the angels, with all of that knowledge, he wrapped a towel around his waist and became a servant. Servants know who they are in Christ. And that knowledge frees them to live as a servant. Number two, servants clothe themselves in humility. This is what I just was mentioning when it says in verse four that he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. You imagine Jesus standing, he lays off that long flowing outer garment, that robe that, that he would have worn. Even by doing that, he was signifying he was getting ready to, to do something significant. He then walks over, picks up a towel, a servant's towel, begins to wrap it around his waist like a servant. He's putting on the garment of a slave. Slaves didn't wear robes. Slaves wore essentially loincloths. And he wrapped himself modestly, humbly in that towel and took on the humble appearance of a servant. The uniform, if you will, of a servant. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. First Peter chapter five and verse four says this uh, to us, it gives us this command, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Did you dress appropriately for church this morning? <laughs> By the way, in church world, that's a topic of conversation sometimes, you know. Well, did, we, did, did they dress right for church? Sometimes in church, people talk, did you see what she was wearing? Did you see what he had on? We don't get too concerned about those things around here. As long as you dress, that's usually good enough, amen? And modestly is good. But Jesus dressed appropriately to serve. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, it says, here's how you should dress in the context of your church. You should dress with humility. Robe yourself in humility. That's what servants do. Thirdly, servants do what others won't do. Knowing who they are, clothed in humility, it's, it's okay with them if no one else is willing to do it because they are willing to do what others will not do. I mentioned, I mentioned to you earlier that, um, uh, that there had been this dispute at the table about who was the greatest. Well, guess what you're not doing when you're arguing whether or not you're the greatest. You're not washing feet. And so they came into the, into the room that night. It would have been the normal process, the normal practice in any social setting like that, that one of them would have taken the humble lead and washed the feet of the others. It is apparent no one did. Because had anyone done that, Jesus wouldn't have needed to rise and wash their feet. Obviously, their feet were still dirty if Jesus got up from the supper table to go wash their feet. And so because they were 
arguing about how they ought to be served and how they ought to be seated in the right place and how they should have it like they wanted it and how they should experience the greatest reward as part of his kingdom and how they should be nearest to him and be the greatest. While they were arguing about that, it never occurred to anybody that maybe I should wash your feet. And so here's what Jesus did. He got up from supper and he did, are you listening? He did what none of them were willing to do. In fact, he did what they refused to do. This is what servants do. Servants are willing to do what most won't do. They're willing to go where most aren't willing to go to do the menial task for the good of the, of the body, for the glory of Christ, for the blessing of others. They are willing to do that that others will not do. This is what a servant does in humility, robes himself like a servant, confident in who they are, and will do what others will not do. The second thing that Jesus teaches us in John chapter 13 is what motivates a servant. Not only what a servant does, but why that servant does it. What is it that motivates a servant? You know, I have to tell you that uh, as a pastor, really longtime pastor, just of this church, 30 years in this church, only one other church I've ever served in my life, 35 years I've been in pastoral ministry, I've wondered what is it that motivates people to serve? What is it? How, how can we motivate people? And I just have to tell you that very often we've tried a lot of different things, really some dumb things probably, well, certainly some dumb things, and some things that maybe worked a little better than others. I've found that guilt is a good motivator, short term. It doesn't last very long, but it works short term. We try all kinds of things to motivate. Here's what Jesus teaches us. You know what motivates a spirit of servanthood? Love. That's it. Love. Listen to what the Bible says. Verse number one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was coming, that is he's going to die He will depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. You know why Jesus got up from supper and washed their feet? Because he loved them. Because he loved them. You know, um, someone said recently, if you love Jesus, you will love his church. I'm just going to let that settle for a second. If you love Jesus, you will love his church. And if you have a take it or leave it kind of attitude toward the church, then can it be said of you that you truly love Jesus? When we love Jesus, we love his church. The Bible says in verse number one that Jesus knows he's going to be with the Father. He loves the Father. In fact, the gospel says over and over, uh, gospels tell us over and over that when he came, he came in obedience and out of love for his Father. It was his love for God, his Father, that motivated him to come in the first place. And verse one says that it's his love for the Father and his love for his disciples that motivated his service, not just washing their feet, but going to the cross and dying for them. It was Christ's love that compelled him to serve. And the same will be true for you. If you have a heart of servanthood, it will come from a heart of love. 
The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 10, we show love to God by serving his saints. We show love to God by serving his saints. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love that you have shown to him by serving his saints. That's what the Bible says. When we, when we love Christ, we demonstrate that love by serving his people. John 13 and verse number one says that Jesus loved through and through all the way to the end. And so my challenge to you today is to understand that the covenant relationship that we share with one another calls us to serve one another motivated by deep love for Christ and love for one another. Do you love those around you? And by the way, I would say that not in a guilting sort of way, but just to say that that the Spirit of God is the author of love within our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And if I am lacking love for those in my church family, demonstrated by an unwillingness to be uh, one of the servers in that church family, then it is a spiritual issue, and the Spirit of God needs to be set free in my life to produce the fruit of love. All right, so what a servant does... Um, why a servant does it, what motivates a servant. Number three, who a servant serves. Jesus shows us in this passage, he teaches us who a servant serves. You may be thinking, well, so uh, if I embrace this covenant ideal of servanthood, who do I serve and how do I do it? What does that look like? Well, look at what Jesus instructs us uh, in verse number 14. Uh, John 13, verse 14, if I then, your master and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Who do servants serve? They serve one another. And by the way, there are a lot of one another commands in the New Testament, lots of them. Uh, We're commanded to love one another. We're commanded to be patient with one another. We're commanded to forbear one another. We're commanded to forgive one another. We're commanded to pray for one another. We're commanded to show hospitality to one another. There are a lot of different one another commands in the Bible. So who is it that you can one another? (laughs) Who can you forgive, forbear, show hospitality, show kindness, pray for, love? Who can you do that with? You do it with the one another's that are closest to you, right? that are nearest to you in the kingdom. So let me suggest some first steps for you. May I I offer you some suggestions? These are not not giant leaps. These are just first steps of adopting a spirit of servanthood. Could I suggest that beginning today and for every Sunday until Jesus comes or you go to heaven... Be a blessing to the people sitting around you. Refresh the people sitting around you by greeting them with authentic Christian love, with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not suggesting you kiss everybody sitting next to you, but the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. So with authentic Christian love. As opposed to, I came here today to be served. I have been greeted at the door handed my bulletin, led in worship, given my sermon. And now, thank you very much. Having been served, I will depart. Please don't talk to me on the way out. 
may I suggest that you begin to, this is going to sound crazy. If y'all are with me, say amen. Slow down. Don't run for the doors. And turn to the people around you when we dismiss our service and just love them by caring about what, care, what they care about, by having a conversation about who they are and what's going on in their life, by inviting friendship in that conversation. Refresh them. Here's another way you can adopt an attitude of service. Begin to pray for the people sitting around you. Begin to ask God to do something in the, in the lives of the people around you so that your heart is turned from being inward and you're beginning to look at those around you and you're asking God to transform them. Here's another way you could be a servant. Approach someone that you see serving and ask them, how'd you get involved in that? How might I get involved in that? Tell me what's good about this. How's this bless you and others? Begin to ask the question. Rather than simply being a recipient of their act of service, engage in what it might look like for you to participate. And then encourage those that you see serving by telling them, thank you for serving. Thank you for serving. Now, you know what, loved ones? These are baby steps. These are baby steps. But what they begin to do is they shift our hearts toward having an attitude of a servant. Verse number six tells us that Jesus, we didn't read this part, but uh, in verse six, Jesus comes to Simon Peter and in typical uh, Peter fashion, he resists. No, you'll never wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. Can't let you wash my feet. Get your hands off my feet, Jesus. <laughs> Get that water away from me, man. Can't let you do it. And Jesus says, look, if I don't wash you, you got no part with me. And then in typical Peter-like fashion, pendulum swing all the way to the other. All right, then, pour it over my head. Just wash my head and my hands. You know, I just sometimes think Peter, the Lord's like, Peter, shut up. Just, <laughs> just let me wash your feet, man. Be quiet. That's, he didn't say that. But essentially, he said, look, you'll understand what I'm doing later. You'll understand what I'm doing later. Sometimes when you serve, you will serve people who don't understand why you're doing it. It's okay that they don't understand. You're serving Christ by serving them. And sometimes you'll serve people who will betray you. I mean, the very moment that you finish serving them, they'll turn around and, and betray you. It's what Judas did. You know, Ju Jesus washed the feet of Judas. And then Judas got up and went out and betrayed Christ. Who's, who a servant serves, we begin with those one another's closest to us and we work out from there. Lastly, let me finish my time with you by simply noticing uh, what's not in this text, but it is all over this biblical idea of serving. It is the marks that a servant will bear. The marks that a servant will bear. Um, there's a beautiful passage and I want you to turn all the way back to the Old Testament with me, please, to the book of Deuteronomy, just as we close. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. So right near the front of your Bible, fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. There's this beautiful idea of a bond servant um, in, uh, in the Hebrew culture. And you'll, you'll read in Deuteronomy 15 what happens when someone is a slave in that culture and how they are to be released. 
at the end of their time of serving. Deuteronomy 15, listen to verse number 12. He says, and if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, uh, is sold unto you and serves you, in other words, if they're a slave, they, they can serve you for six years. Then the seventh year, you shall let him go free. And when you send him out, when he goes free, you do not send him away empty, but you shall furnish to him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. Of all wherewith the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give unto him. For you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command thee this thing this day. So it's this beautiful picture of God saying, look, I want you to release those who are in servitude to you in the same way with the same gracious heart that God has released you from your slavery. That's beautiful. But look at verse 16. And it shall be that if he, this, this slave, this servant says to you, if he says unto you, I will not go away from you because I love you. And I love your family and I want to serve you. You see the picture? You've had this slave under this culture. You've had this slave. It's time for him to go free. And after six years, you're going to set him free. And he says, no, no, no. I don't want to go. I know I can go. I know I am free. But I love you. And so I just want to. I want to serve you, not out of compulsion, not to pay a debt, not because I have to. I want to serve you because I love you. So what do you do in that case? Look at verse 17. If if that's the case, then you shall take an awl. It's a a leather punch. It's It's a sharp instrument, like a leather punch. You take an awl and you thrust it through his ear unto the door. He shall be thy servant forever. Also, do this also unto your maidservant in the same way. Now, here's, here's, here's what this law is telling us. That if you have this servant who says, I love you and I want to slay, I want to be your servant till I die, simply out of love, then you walk him to the door of your house. You put him in the threshold. You show him the freedom that he can have. You give him the opportunity. And if he stands there free to go and says no. I'm not leaving. Where else would I go? I'm giving my life to serve you. Then you mark him. And you mark him by leaning right there in the door, lean his head over against the doorpost, take his ear, take a leather punch, just like a lot of you ladies and some of you guys have had your ears pierced, and you pierce his ear. You put a hole in his ear and that scar, that mark will forever mark him as a bond servant. One serving because he loves Here's my question. What has marked your life because of your loving service to Jesus? What scars do you wear because of your loving service to Jesus? You know, Jesus saw after his resurrection his disciples and they didn't know, or or, uh, Thomas didn't believe that it was him. And, uh, and the disciples, in another instance, were afraid. They thought they'd seen a ghost. And you know how Jesus proved who he was? He said, look, it's me. See the scars. My service for you on the cross has resulted in scars. Paul says the same thing in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 17. He says, I bear in my body the marks of my service to Jesus. Serving Jesus ought to mark our lives And yet I'm afraid that we live in a culture that embraces ease, 
that clamors for comfort, that wants the, the hope and joy of heaven without the willingness to sacrifice and serve and even be scarred for the cause of the one that's taking us to heaven. Has your life in any way been marked as a slave of Christ? I mean, just a, a more limited calendar, a sacrificial attitude, a willingness to do what nobody else will do. Are you a servant of Christ? We are in covenant relationship together to love Christ and to serve God by serving one another. And all God's people said, amen.